Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. According to the Global Report, Death Sentences and Executions 2018, published by Amnesty International, executions around the globe have declined to their lowest levels in a decade. In 2018, at least 600 executions took place in 20 countries for a 31% decline from the 993 in 20 countries in 2017, and 58% less than the 1,600 plus executed in 2015. The 25 executions in the U.S. were the seventh most in any country. Only two countries in the Western Hemisphere, the U.S. and Guyana, instituted any death sentences in 2018. That number was the lowest since Amnesty began tracking worldwide death sentences 40 years ago. For the 10th consecutive year, the U.S. was the only country in the Americas to execute anyone. This year, Washington State's Supreme Court declared the death penalty in that state unconstitutional. Over 19,000 people are on death row around the world. Perilous Chronicle, which tracks prisoner organizing and uprisings, prepared the following report on a riot inside the Covington County, Alabama jail. During a transfer of three prisoners, a group of unruly prisoners engaged in what the Sheriff's Department called a, quote, riot, though they did not specify what that entailed. According to the Sheriff's Department, the prisoners were upset because they believed that one of the prisoners being transferred had been pushed to the floor although the sheriff claims the prisoner actually jumped. Prisoners in the block, who were not fully locked down due to inoperable locks, joined in and could not be locked down. After the situation escalated, the sheriff called in backup officers and deployed a, quote, pepper bomb in order to subdue the prisoners. The sheriff acknowledged that prisoners who had not been involved in the disturbance were exposed to the chemical agents. The sheriff's office stated that Quote, no officers or inmates were hurt. However, there were heavy exposures to the deterrent. Unquote. No information was given regarding injuries to the prisoner who fell. While the gas was being cleared, inmates were taken to a holding area outdoors within the facility. The jail was then decontaminated and the prisoners were put back in the cell block. The event occurred just a day after three of the 27 members of the Covington County Jail staff were fired by Sheriff Blake Terman after they were caught violating jail policy by allowing prisoners to pass out the mail, in some instances to prisoners in unsecured cells. The sheriff clarified the gravity of the situation to a news station saying, quote, yes, they were open, not to get outside, but it was one door closer to getting outside, unquote. Five months before the event, in September of 2018, Michael Ansley, 40, died at the facility under uncertain circumstances. This week, we finish our conversation between Toussaint Lozier and Nicole Siegel. 
This is part three of a series in which we hear Lozier, author of Rethinking the American Prison Movement, speak to Siegel about his research while writing his book, in which he builds a cohesive picture of the long history of incarceration. In this final part of the conversation, Lozier focuses on the more recent wave of prisoner organizing. Here they are. We spend some time focusing on not only organizing itself, but also some of the litigation that comes out of this movement. Oh, that's another um, arena of long-term influence. Exactly. Right? And uh, we focus, especially coming out of the 1960s with the um, uh, some of the decisions that come out of the Warren Court that recognize mm-hmm. the ways in which prisoners can uh, sue in federal court and demand constitutional rights. Uh, we kind of extend that all the way up through the 1970s and show um, how the prison movement is really unique in some ways in that you have uh, writ writers, jailhouse lawyers, who, are, who have a foot in the movement, but also have a foot in using a kind of legal strategy to expand the terrain on which prisoners can organize. They do this with the support of the um, NAACP Legal Defense Fund, right. with the National Lawyers Guild, and kind of other local legal organizations. There's really a, an upsurge in how much ground they're able to claim up until the late 1970s, where you have a series of not only more conservative Supreme Court justices who are put on the bench, but uh, as a result, more conservative decisions that really cut against prisoners' rights to such a degree where um, the basic kind of labor rights demand that had sort of been on the table in terms of considering prisoners as, as workers to some degree, um, who can make basic demands, even First Amendment claims about the right to assembly, the right to organize, uh-huh. that those claims are undercut and that ultimately what we get as we get further into the 80s and 90s mm-hmm. is... Um, a basic adoption by the courts that has a profound effect on correctional policy where instead of being able to recognize the rights of prisoners and second-guessing or challenging the policies and actions by uh, prison administrators, that the courts essentially say, we have to give prison officials, regardless of the circumstances, the benefit of the doubt about Mm -hmm. anything that happens behind bars. Much of the same way in which kind of the courts today basically say, we are going to give police officers uh-huh, kind of the basic, right. we're going to give them almost kind of carte blanche in terms of whatever they do. We're not going to second guess it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have to base any criticism of police action upon our having to put ourselves in the police officer's shoes and say, did this person fear for their safety? In a similar sort of way, the courts adopt the same principle where they're like, we can't second guess prison administrators, you know, the things that they have to do to establish kind of basic security mm-hmm. and any criticism that we might take up has to be premised on our sense of what prison administrators themselves are doing. We have to look at it from their perspective. So this is um, what you're talking about, this period of retrenchment is into the 1980s when Reagan is appointing Mm -hmm. Supreme Court justices. um, But it starts even, it starts to change even during the late 1970s, Ford administration and what have you, Uh, where you get the beginnings of this sort of shift. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. One of the things um, that I hope this, like, for organizers this contributes to is mm-hmm. I think in many ways, you know, people who haven't gone to law school, myself included, we think about law being made through Congress, right? Uh-huh. And one of the things that I think this book tries to highlight is the ways in which, and this is very important for the prison movement uh, and for prison organizing more broadly, is prisoners force their ability during the 50s and 60s to make claims upon federal courts mm-hmm. and are in the position to really change the way in which the law is practiced by pushing the courts to make decisions that are favorable to prisoners. Mm-hmm. Without 
any legislation being passed at the congressional level or anything like that, that intervention changes the legal landscape. Hmm. And this that's, dynamic that's inspiring. Yeah, and it's this dynamic of changing case law, which is uh-huh. which has an important influence on how state officials operate is a really an important terrain of struggle prior to significant legislation like the Prisoner Litigation Reform Act of nineteen ninety six, mm-hmm. prior to that being passed. We really try to highlight how uh, important Supreme Court decisions have an impact, reverberate, you know, within institutions about changing the, the really the parameters within which prison officials can act and uh, prison organizers can operate to some degree. And so one of the things that we would try to bake in here is a, a sense of like how how those decisions get made uh-huh. and how they shift the terrain of struggle. Hmm. Um, Do you think that the terrain of struggle is no longer in the courts, maybe because of the PLRA? So... Um, I think the terrain of struggle is is still within the courts. I think if you look at um, uh, cases like uh, like um, the case of Mumia Abu Jamal, yeah, right, and uh, really fights that have happened around his um, not only his incarceration but his access to medical care, that is emblematic of some of the bigger ways in which um, courts can have an important influence on the way in which prison in as prisons as institutions of the state operate that's not to say that like courts are vehicles for say prison abolition right but they can, they can <laughs> that's not yeah that's not right for people who are organizing within state institutions they can serve as an important terrain of struggle and one that shouldn't be discounted because they can you know they can offer they can widen that terrain of struggle and they can close it down to some degree one of the things that kind of highlights this, this to some degree is uh the case of super maximum security prisons. Oh yeah. So the first super maximum security, well, the first several super maximum security prisons, um, kind of we trace out in the book how they emerged directly in response to uh, prisoner organizing. Uh, the most famous of these being Pelican Bay State Prison. This is California. not exactly a positive result no. from prisoner organizing. No, but this is this is this is this is a yeah, retrenchment, and that's you right. have this is the period of retrenchment that you're and you have about. scholars who have been able to point out there are prison officials in California who who were like designing Pelican Bay basically to say we do not want another George Jackson to be able to organize within our institution, right. and it's so directly in response to some of the high points of prisoner organizing that we see during this sort of revolutionary period that set the stage for this retrenchment. And I don't want to be too, I don't want to be too optimistic in terms of saying that like federal courts and what have you can do all these things because one of the things that is, I think, particularly important about prisons is they they really operate with a significant amount of impunity within our society uh, and right. a whole lot of uh, a whole lack of transparency. Which um, is funny when people say that they object to private prisons because of the lack of yeah. accountability and transparency when we already have that. It's, it's kind of baked into the way the institutions is, operate. And even the creation of institutions like Pelican Bay are premised on being in, even less accountable and less transparent than prisons had been previously. So part of what we're getting, you know, Pelican Bay is all the way at like the northern tip of California. It's far from any kind of urban centers and where a significant amount of movement activity was taking place. And that part of what we try to highlight is that part of the retrenchment has not just been in terms of like repression in a very sort of naked and brute sense, but also really limiting the advances that the prison movement had made in terms of opening up prisons as institutions to broader public scrutiny, whether that's through the courts, whether that's through sort of journalists and social movement forces, 
uh, labor organizers, things of that nature. This really sets the terrain on which we're operating today in that these kind of changes that you're talking about, say, in Massachusetts and other places where they're limiting uh, essentially outside contact with prisoners is in keeping with some of the ways in which we're in it. We've been in a period of 40 years of retrenchment in many different ways. And uh, that's... Do you think we're still in a period of retrenchment today? I think we're still... We're in a... um, like potentially a period of transition to some okay. degree. I think there's what's baked, been baked into the system in terms of its normal momentum and operating pr- procedure is a continual drift toward retrenchment. Mm-hmm. But that part of what's interesting and exciting and opportune about this moment is a lot of the legitimacy of that retrenchment is less, um, you know, is is, is less uh, concrete. And there's also mm-hmm. more openings to... Um, to question the um, the kind of heavy emphasis on um, all the different sort of kind of repressive aspects of incarceration that have kind of come up from super maximum security prisons now being considered potentially kind of forms of torture to juvenile like sentencing regimes that are like mandatory minimums, juvenile life without parole. A lot of this is being questioned. Yeah. And at the same time, there's an exciting amount of prison organizing that we'll sort mm-hmm. of talk about a little bit later on over the past decade decade and a half, there's been an upsurge in the levels of prisoner organizing mm-hmm. um, from the um, uh, the Pelican Bay hunger strikes right. of the uh, kind of um, 2000s to the, the ways in which we've had these sort of rounds of prisoner struggle, whether it's been in like Georgia specifically to mm-hmm. more broadly Florida. national efforts, Nash- Florida, uh-huh. Texas. Uh-huh. Um, and there's really efforts at having some degree of national coordination uh, amongst prisoners and uh, prison organizers. Um, so I think there's a lot of that. I think one of the things that we try to highlight in the book is really the make sure that we have a good sense of the historical Right. Um, legal and sort of organizational context that really informs where where we the find present, ourselves yeah. now. Yeah. Well, before we come to the present, let me just ask you, um, you end the chapter on retrenchment in 1998. Mm-hmm. What is it about the about 1998 that makes it a good endpoint for this final chapter of your book? So one of the things that we try to do is um, to not have an overly negative cast in terms of what has happened over the past several decades. So even through the some early retrenchment, we focus on um, important um, uh, forms of struggle, whether that's anti-carceral feminism. So really looking at the way in which um, feminist politics, the women's movement, um, uh, really uh, intersected with prisoner organizing in very profound ways mm-hmm. and cut against the grain of what can oftentimes be seen as um, a default kind of within feminist politics to a kind of like uh, looking to the state to deal with issues of sexual assault or gender-based violence and mm-hmm. looking at the way in which you had key feminist intellectuals, organizers, challenging not only uh, a kind of um, a problematic law and order politics within the movement, but also challenging the reach of the state and seeing it as simply as a question of challenging um, patriarchy more broadly, right? Right. Um, so you're talking here about the contest between the anti-carceral feminism mm-hmm. of refusing to feed the beast, mm-hmm. feed the prison system, and the carceral feminism that did look to the state mm-hmm. and to incarceration as a solution to things like domestic violence. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and how that was important, not just like in terms of movement debates, but had a really important impact on cases like that of Join Little, mm-hmm. efforts to organize, to challenge the, the role of patriarchy 
in incarceration, particularly women's incarceration. Can you talk about the case of Joanne Little? So Joanne Little was an African-American woman in North Carolina who was incarcerated essentially because of her, you know, upbringing, growing up poor and working class, and who was incarcerated and was dealt with something that is oftentimes kind of shockingly routine for women behind bars, Mm -hmm. which is uh, sexual assault, particularly Mm -hmm. by a guard. And in this instance, she fought back against her her assailant, killed the guard, and escaped from prison. And uh, there was, she was caught and she was brought up on charges of murder, essentially. And there was a really profound nationwide movement to highlight her resistance, her self-defense against rape, it's that kind of long history of uh, sexual assault against African-American women that goes all the way back to the institution of slavery mm-hmm. that flows through the kind of Jim Crow period and the mm-hmm. organizing that black women did against sexual assault mm-hmm. um, under that regime of white supremacy and then also kind of manifested at that moment in time. Oftentimes her case is forgotten, but uh, or is easily forgotten. And it's unfortunate because it was a real focal point for organizing against rape, against anti-racist organizing, and against not just carceral feminism, but just more broadly, the sort of early period of retrenchment it's again, you of, know, carceral, of the carceral state. Yeah. And it shows in some ways the important way in which these defense campaigns, which I kind of mentioned earlier as being like a key organizational form and sort of mm-hmm. tradition of prisoner organizing and yeah. sort of inside-outside collaboration, mm-hmm. continued with her case yeah. and was you know, had earlier instances and kind of iterations, but was continued forward with her case. We also highlight in some of the kind of anti-carceral feminism support directly for women, uh, particularly in New York State, who are organizing against the conditions of their confinement, again, against uh, sexual assault within prison, how they really um, were able to not only organize themselves, use some aspects of prisoner litigation and case law to advance their struggle, Uh, but really also became an example for some of the organizing that was taking place from the sort of anti-carceral feminist perspective nationwide. Do you think that that is part of why women of color Mm -hmm. organized the the, the movement Critical Resistance, which you mentioned to me Mm -hmm. when we were talking off the air, and which was formed in 1998, which Mm -hmm. is another Mm -hmm. of this, the definition of the date for you for the end of retrenchment, Mm Do you think that part of this organizing on behalf of women and by women of color is what led to the creation of critical resistance? It's definitely a key aspect of it. I mean, if you look at somebody like Angela Davis, who obviously played an important role, although there were a a whole host of really brilliant Mm -hmm. organizers who were involved in the, the establishment of critical resistance. Angela Davis is somebody who has a foot in black feminist organizing, in uh, socialist politics, and the black liberation struggle, right? So she kind of brings together all those different those different nodes. But I think it also speaks to the ways in which, in this sort of period of retrenchment, it's not only retrenchment simply because the state is cracking down and making prison organizing more difficult. We get a prison boom that is not only putting more people behind bars, but is setting up institutions, and we talk about this with the kind of warehouse model of incarceration, 
building prison institutions, new prisons that are premised on undercutting the ability of prisoners to organize. And some of that we see in places like uh, Pelican Bay uh, that are facilities that are so secure that they isolate prisoners individually and make it incredibly difficult, although not impossible, for them to bring themselves together collectively. So we have this kind of warehouse model of incarceration that's, mm-hmm. that's cracking down on prisoner organizing. But I think we're also in a period, this sort of period of retrenchment is also one in which the legitimacy of organizing against incarceration is undercut in some ways. Yeah. And that's everything from the ability of, you know, labor, labeling black children as sort of super predators to mm-hmm. kind of uh, projecting an idea of innate criminality amongst not just African-Americans, but anybody who is kind of caught up within the criminal, yeah. uh, criminal justice system. And so there's less ground to organize, but some of the most important organizing that is done during this period is by in many ways by women of color who are attempting to keep families together, who are visiting their loved ones, who are finding more and more women of color caught up within the prison system. It's that dynamic, which I think also undercuts some of the more problematic kind of masculinist organizing within the movement, really, unfortunately, in some ways, positioned Black women, women of color as key leaders in the movement in a way that afforded them a significant amount of recognition in terms of their leadership, but also I think without their labor still being like properly recognized in some sense, because it was understood that this was still sort of an issue that impacted men in particular, Mm -hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah, and and the women often being positioned as adjunct to a man, you know, in relation to another. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so what would you say is the state of the prison movement today? So I should say... The conclusion for this book uh-huh. was written and rewritten several different times. Uh-huh. Um, because as, as conditions changed. As conditions changed. I mean... Um, Did you rewrite it after the presidential election? Yeah. Re- I mean, we had to rewrite it after the presidential yeah. election, after, after Trump's electoral victory, but more so because we wanted to be able to strike a proper balance in terms of saying things are different at this moment in time than they were in 1998. If you look at... Obviously, the some of the openings that have been created in terms of questioning mass incarceration, not just on like, say, a scholarly level, but more concretely in terms of policy, in terms of this sort of what seemed to be a moment during the Obama administration of this kind of bipartisan approach to a kind of um, decarceration because of the fiscal pressures that large scale mass incarceration incarceration created on states across the country. This upsurge, not only in the immigrant rights movement, but also in many respects in response to that movement's challenge and increase in immigrant detention, especially privately run immigrant detention. Really the upsurge and struggle, as I said earlier, in places like Pelican Bay, but really in an interesting way that's different from this history in places in the South, Texas, in uh, Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, where some of the sort of federally funded shift in towards mass incarceration really had a significant impact. And um, uh, we've seen not only the establishment of kind of a whole host of new, um, building of new prisons, uh, but more recently we've seen an upsurge in struggle. Alabama has been a key focal point in terms of uh, prisoner organizing and was actually the site of the, the place of origin of the, the most recent call for a nationwide prison strike that happened mm-hmm on the 45th anniversary of the Attica Prison Rebellion, Uh right? That trying to take into account these really basically the same sort of facts on the ground that have existed over the past several decades, those things kind of like large-scale mass incarceration having 
2 million plus people, 2.1, 2.2 million people behind bars, um, uh, having a kind of crumbling public commitment to mass incarceration, though, like mm-hmm. much more of a questioning of its legitimacy, just mm-hmm. in the kind of common sense of the country. Um, obviously, as I said, the rise in immigrant detention, but also struggle within those facilities as well, too. Um, and really this kind of emerging prison movement, kind of nascent prison movement in different parts of the, or kind of nascent upsurge in the prison movement in different parts of the country, but particularly parts of the country that are outside of what had historically been the sort of centers of the struggle, like places like New York, California, Chicago. Um, These are the places where we've seen, obviously, important um, uh, efforts in organizing, but they're not the same as what we've seen happen in Alabama and in Florida and in Texas. Uh, So really trying to take into account I think the quote is like the kind of new is trying to be born, but the old is not yet dead, right? Uh-huh. Like that kind of dynamic is one that seems to be kind of where things are at this moment in time. Um, and attempting to not necessarily spend a lot of time dwelling on this, because obviously this is a history book, but uh-huh. saying that this history is important because more so than we've seen in decades past, um, there's much more that opportunities that cracks in the wall are starting to break out and that um, there are new opportunities to really push things forward, um, to think about prisoner organizing in a way that hasn't been possible in the past Mm -hmm. and to find ways to sort of intervene and support that is really kind of what's on the table. What would you say to people um, who want to become an ally, Mm -hmm. um, inside or outside, want Mm -hmm. to become a part of this movement right now? Mm -hmm. I think one of the basic things is to is to one see what sort of work is being done where you are because there are a range of different organizations both kind of locally and nationally that are already involved in some ways uh-huh. and it oftentimes gets said that you don't want to kind of remake the wheel especially dealing with these kind of institutions I think it's really important to build on the work that's been done it's 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 hard to overstate how fundamental some of the stuff that um, has kind of been nuts and bolts in terms of prisoner organizing, like visitations, right. uh, making contact through letters and phone calls, uh-huh. um, finding ways to support prisoner organizers is um, is really really important. Yeah. Um, one one national organization that I think does a really wonderful job of this is Black and Pink, where yeah. they have they really place a priority on. Um, uh, having their members being in contact with members on the inside and not only building up those personal relationships, but using those relationships as the basis upon which to organize uh, kind of organize in support of the kind of gender based oppression, oftentimes racial oppression that um, their kind of inside members have to deal with yeah. and um, using that as the kind of the, the as a wedge, as a wedge yeah. to a kind of abolitionist yeah. politics. I did an interview with Jackie Wang, okay. whom you know, mm-hmm. author of Carceral Capitalism, yeah. and she talked about being a member of Black and Pink mm-hmm. and some of what they do. Yeah. No, I think they're a really, um, I think they're a really powerful example of what's possible. I think the ultimately kind of what those type of organizations need to figure out, and we all have to figure out really, is how do we build, essentially rebuild the prison movement in a way that helps to support people who are organizing on the inside, provide the communities that have been hardest hit by mass incarceration with the kind of resources and support to um, kind of galvanize a challenge to mass incarceration and build 
broader coalitions and alliances that make prisoner organizing easier and also um, anticipate and undercut this tendency baked into the DNA Mm -hmm. of the United States for reaction, for retrenchment, and make it easier for us to avoid some of the pitfalls that were that the prison mm-hmm. movement faced in earlier periods of time. I guess we need some new bakers to do <laughs> some gene operations. <laughs> some DNA, <laughs> some genetic uh, engineering. We need or some, some genetic engineering well, I mean, in our kitchens. I mean, that's, the, that's I think, the, the, one of the inspiring aspects of this history, as difficult as and kind of um, dispiriting as prisons as institutions can be, is a sense that not only is the struggle important because of important, uh, just basic fundamental questions of human rights, dignity, things along those lines, that there's an important way in which dealing with some of the most inhumane and repressive aspects of our society can give us a foundation to think about re, re, genetically re-engineering or transforming, rebaking our society in mm-hmm. some ways too. And it's not, yeah. I don't wanna overstate the degree to which that's easy work, or um, simple in a, in a basic way, but that that is, it's a side of struggle that cuts against many of the very easy illusions that we can fall into mm-hmm. about what this country is about mm-hmm. and kind of what its possibilities are. And you really see, in many ways, the reality of what kind of country we live in, in terms of inequality, in terms of racial oppression, when we really wrestle with the problems that these institutions create. And we have a much better foundation upon which to think about changing things fundamentally when we kind of look at it from that perspective. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.